You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Though previously believed to be the best solution for reducing the risk of restenosis, studies now show that drug-eluting stents, or DES, may actually be more prone to late sudden occlusion of the coronary arteries. In fact, in long-term data presented from the RAVEL trial, the original trial reporting a remarkable decrease in the rate of restenosis with DES, the long-term incidence of death or heart attack was not significantly different between DES and bare metal stents. Indeed, there was a non-significant trend toward better outcomes with the bare metal stents. Now physicians are realizing that DES may lead to the need for prolonged therapy with Plavix in patients treated with DES. Is it possible that the advancement of such technology and achievements are just creating a cycle of disease and excessive unnecessary continuing procedures, not to mention expensive medicine costs? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Roxana Mehran, Director of Clinical Research at the Data Coordinating and Analysis Center at the Cardiovascular Research Foundation and Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Mehran has a long-standing research interest in cardiovascular topics, including intravascular ultrasound, angioplasty, and coronary stenting. Dr. Mehran, welcome to the show. Thank you. You sound like you're about 38 years old. Oh, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say that, God forbid, we discovered that you had a 75% blockage in your LAD, and we knew that you had great blood flow, you passed a stress test with flying colors. What would you want to do for yourself, knowing everything you know? Would you want a stent placed? Would you be comfortable with medical therapy? Would you want a combination done? Okay, so I really like your question first and foremost because you are recognizing that a woman at the age of 38 can have coronary artery disease, and this is a very, very important message to send out on this radio show to make sure that people do recognize that women are not free of heart disease, and there are many, many women with heart disease even at the ages of 38 and the 40s, and it is the number one killer of all women in the United States. So this scenario is not very um, not rare and right. actually seen. I think in the, if there is no evidence of ischemia and that I actually pass with flying colors, if I have absolutely no symptoms and there is a blockage there, I think a trial of medical therapy with aspirin and uh, obviously cholesterol reduction, risk reduction, and, and you know making sure that the blood pressure and cholesterol is in good hand, I think it would be great. And close surveillance, whether it's imaging or stress tests, will be extremely important. The one thing we don't know, Dr. Caskell, which I think is very important, is what is the natural history of these lesions in which there's absolutely no ischemia, there's some blockage. We all know from very, very good studies done in the early 1980s that the vulnerable plaque is the non-obstructive plaque. Right. And that there is, you know, depending on, on the lipid or the composition of that plaque with a core that is lipid-rich and a thin fibrous cap that are prone to heart attacks can exist. And we have no way of knowing that. So, I think that we don't know the answer to that, and I think depending on what the patient's status is, their inflammatory state, their C-reactive protein, their IVIS, intravascular ultrasound imaging of the plaque, I think all of those will be very important. 
there's right now no evidence that in a patient with an obstructive lesion that produces absolutely no ischemia in the asymptomatic patient, that stenting does anything for that patient. You touched upon using IVIS in trying to figure out the makeup of the plaque that you're seeing either on angiogram or Mm -hmm. with other means. Do you personally use the results from IVIS if you see a very rigid, calcified plaque, will you stent it versus if you see a lipid-rich plaque, will you go for it and stent it? Yeah, these are very, very good questions. And I think that we're having a lot of learning with both intravascular ultrasound and a new technique called virtual histology, which actually uses the backscatter of the, of the ultrasound waves to produce images that will have been validated to show a lipid core and a necrotic core of, of the vessel. What we don't know Right now, as of today, as we speak today in 2007, there is absolutely no evidence that virtual histology or IVIS can predict a plaque to rupture. What we do know is when a patient comes in with a heart attack and you look at their plaque, that plaque is usually soft by IVIS. There's positive remodeling. Mm -hmm. There is usually a ruptured fibrous cap that can actually be visualized, and there's thrombus that could actually be visualized in a, and uh, echolucencies that we see. I, I think that's been shown, but in a stable patient, what the plaque composition means and how does it predict if a patient has a heart attack or not, it's research in process, and we are having a couple of trials looking at the natural history to answer this very important question. Can you or can we predict who is going to have a late clot with a DES placed? Well, I think if we had that answer, that we would not be sitting here having this controversy. (laughs) Right. So we absolutely don't know at the moment. I think, as I said earlier, I think there are some trials that are ongoing that are going to look at platelet responsive, you know, aspirin and clopidogrel responsiveness in patients. That's one important aspect. The other question is whether cessation or keeping the patients on Plavix makes a difference. The other one is that is there something about the adventitia or about the plaque growing, you know, behind the stent that can then become unstable and rupture that can be causing this. That's another mechanism. The other mechanism that that may be associated with late stent thrombosis may be some fracture of the stent struts. Uh, There's been some reports of that. I just don't think we know the answer. But please, make sure that, and I hope that the listeners are understanding because there are many, many patients with medicated stents and they should not be feeling, imagine that if, you know, you're hearing all of this and you have a stent. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really important and reassuring is that one, the Food and Drug Administration is on this requiring long-term follow-up on all of the patients who receive these drug-eluting stents. The companies that make these drug-eluting stents are on this by doing a very, very deep surveillance of this and getting the information to all of the people at risk. The third and most important thing, I think, is that up to now, there is no evidence that if you have a drug-eluting stent, you're worse off as far as dying or having a heart attack. I think that's really, really important. While there is some evidence of late occlusion, we'll figure out what that is. We'll try to answer that question that you just had. And the next generation stance will probably address this issue, and that will also go away, hopefully. You are listening to Reach MD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and I'm with Dr. Roxana Mehran, a longstanding researcher of cardiovascular topics, including intravascular ultrasound, 
angioplasty and coronary stenting. Dr. Mayron, I'd like you to put on your economic hat for a minute mm-hmm. and try and guess what kind of economic savings we could experience in our country if cardiologists were to change their stenting habits. Do you think the monies saved would be significant? What do you mean by changing, increasing it or decreasing it? If we were to do more medical management oh, and I, wait until... I believe until... actually that you would actually increase costs. Because imagine the number of people in whom the symptoms would not be relieved. So not only are you spending on the medications, you're also then needing to cross over and have a PCI procedure to improve the quality of your life and relieve the symptoms. And I think for anybody who takes care of patients, we know that that's really what's happening is that medical therapy, and and you ask somebody when you talk about optimal medical therapy, I mean, Uh, I don't know if you've ever been on antibiotics when you have to take the medicine three times a day. It's impossible to remember to take them. And we take this medication compliance for granted, thinking that all of our patients are able to take all these medicines. And it's a very, very difficult task for anybody who wants to have a good quality of life to continue to take medications two, three, four times a day. Mm Uh, to treat their symptoms so that they can go to the grocery shop and buy their food. I think it's actually going to impact it in a negative way. I'd like to get back to the virtual histology you mentioned before. I've seen some of these pictures, and they're they're very pretty. They're, they're colored. Mm-hmm. There's red. There's green. I'm not sure what the other color is. But what do you do if you have a colorblind cardiologist? Then you're in trouble. <laughs> Well, you need a good tech in the lab. Yeah, and I and and the other thing is that the virtual histology images are all remember these are all um, right now investigational and it's right. not really um, it's not mainstream it's as not... yet mainstream or used to guide therapy. It's not really been shown in any way to predict who's going to have a vulnerable plaque and who's not. Right, they are very pretty to look at though. And would you say that there is good correlation between Dr. I think her name is Vermani? her work on actual histology and the virtual histology seen with ultrasound pictures. Um, you mean you're referring to Dr. Renu Vermani's work? Correct. I have a great deal of respect for Dr. Renu Vermani, who's done incredible work both on the virtual histology as well as on uh, really alerting us to perhaps the causes of late stent thrombosis, et cetera. And I think that a lot of her work is, is very much granted. But I do believe that at the end, while pathology is, is very, very important as far as insights to understanding causes of our disease processes, what's really important is focusing on the patient and what's happening clinically in the patient and population at large. And up to now, we don't have that evidence yet as far as virtual histology to show that this actually predicts patients who are going to have heart attacks. You touched upon the vulnerable plaque. Do you first agree in the vulnerable plaque theory? And second, do you think there's anything down the pipeline or down the road that is going to help us predict which is the vulnerable plaque? I not only believe that there's probably uh, vulnerable plaques, but I more so in the concept of the vulnerable patient, if you will, because I do believe that Uh, Obviously, these plaques are in the patients, and it may be something about the patient as a whole, their inflammatory processes and their diabetes status, their blood pressure, et cetera. And we don't know, and maybe some biomarker that may be associated with a higher risk of plaque rupture and uh, acute myocardial infarction subsequent to that. If you had to pick one biomarker to put your decision-making on, 
I know this is a tough question for you. Basically, I want to ask, which emerging biomarker do you think has the most promise? Do you think it's LP plaque? Do you still like CRP? Do you like PAI, fibrinogen? I think we have most data with C-reactive protein, the work of Paul Richter out of Harvard. But I, I honestly, I don't know that we have, even with that data, that we have great evidence that that is actually predicting patients with vulnerable plaque. I think, you know, it's very important that we do natural history studies, and I don't think that we have the bandwidth as far as funding natural history studies to better understand what is really happening and better understand the correlation of these biomarkers to plaque rupture. Dr. Mehran, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. It's really great to be part of this, and I'm happy to be able to share and refute some of your comments (laughs) regarding interventional cardiology. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments or questions, please send us an email to xm at reachmd.com and let us know what you think. Thanks for listening to the show.